1 Peter 3, we're in a study of 1 Peter, and we've called it weird. And uh, we've been in a chapter 2 and moving into chapter 3 where Peter is dealing with uh, unjust suffering and submission, all topics that I'm sure you couldn't wait to get here this morning to, to dive into and, and learn about. And, and yet, it's a reality in this world, unjust suffering. Uh, the, the need for submission, the call for submission. And, and biblically, there's beauty in these. There's wisdom in these. And the world has distorted these, and the world ha- in their own wisdom has tried to define these and has, has dist- really destroyed the beauty that God has in store for us in these. And the reality is that even in these, even in unjust suffering, even in submission, weird, there's a weirdness there. There, there's a difference, as, as, as Micah Tyler sang about. There ought to be something different. There ought to be lots of somethings different about our lives. And when we come to these passages, you know, our culture and its influences are real. Beyond what we realize, subtly, not so subtly, when we come to these passages, um, our culture and, and our experiences, in many ways, attempt to blind us to these truths. These are, not, these are not passages that you just, you, the first thing you wake up in the morning, you're running to this passage. And, and our own culture, our own sinfulness, blinds us to the beauty of even these passages. You know, when someone comes a Christian, it is a, it is a life-altering call to radical dying to self. It's not just simply the addition of one more component or compartment to your life. It is the denial of self. It is taking up your cross daily, dying to self and following after a Savior. It is the total surrender of of your life and your will to that of another. And again, part of that, that's where discipleship comes in. But but again, it 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 is Philippians 2. It is... As a believer, we have to begin to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We have to take the fact that we are now believers, that we are now children of God, that we are now, that we are not our own, that we have bought with a price, and and learn how to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. Learn what it means to glorify our master in all these areas. Learn what it means to deny self. Learn what it means to take up our crosses and follow him to seek to glorify Him, whether we eat, drink, or whatever we do. All fueled by the Spirit in us. It's not up to us in in the grand sense, but it is up to us to work out our salvation. That passage goes on to say, For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. We have been bought with a price, believer. We're not our own. And, and Peter, in the context here, has made it very clear. We exist to declare His excellencies. We exist to make much of Him in the world around us. We exist to live in such a way that, that we would declare the beauty and the awesomeness of our great God and we would draw Him, draw others to Him, rather. Even yesterday, we painted uh, at Martinez and did some landscaping. The, the purpose of that is to... That the, the world we live in, the neighborhood we live in, they'd have nothing bad to say about us. That they'd see the excellencies of our great God. That, that, they would, that anything they would attempt to say negatively about us would be put to shame because of the reputation 
that we have in our neighborhoods and on our businesses and in our lives through the lives that we live as believers. We, we can't water down what it means to be a follower of Christ. We can't water down what it means to be a believer. We can't lose our awe of that. And, and, and again, we exist as believers to, to extend God's kingdom. We exist to declare His excellencies. And even in this passage, you have to remember that. Even when our spouses are not on the same page with us, even when our spouses don't support that, we, we must get that settled in our heart that we exist to declare the excellencies of the One who called us out of darkness into marvelous light. We are not our own. We, my, again, we cannot distort what the gospel means and what it means for us. Again, Paul says, you are not your own. Or do you not know that you have been bought with a price, 1 Corinthians 6? You are not your own. Therefore, therefore, glorify God in your bodies. You're not your own. This is not take God's salvation and just tack it on like a backpack and continue living the way that you've always lived and live for self, but then at the end of the day, oh, I get to go to heaven. That's not salvation. It is a surrender. It, it, is, it, is, it, is, it is a change of allegiance. The one to whom you were an enemy, the one to whom you were at animosity because of your sin has adopted you into his family. It is literally the laying down of your arms and once you were in opposition and changing sides. It's a big deal. And our culture, and again, in our culture that we, we live in, we, you know, we have this kind of lease mentality on everything, and, and, and it's watered down what we view of Christianity and how we view ourselves and how we view Christianity. Self, we live in a culture where self is glorified, even in Christian circles. And this passage, again, just assails ourself, assassinates self, goes completely against self. And, and that's why, again, I love preaching through books verse by verse because you've seen the context and, and again everything you'll see your main point everything uh, uh, that we see here is out of reverence for our lord paul peter said that all through verses 13 through where we are now it's it, it is out of reverence for our lord a wife is commanded to live in such a way that even if her husband is a non-believer you see it there the main point her husband may be won over one over. That's the goal here. To bring somebody into the fold. To win them to Christ. And that's truly beautiful. That is truly beautiful. A wife that lives her life that way, that's beautiful. And there's a lot here to unpack. I mean, Peter talks not only about submission, but then he gets into clothing and hair and all the... Clearly, I don't have a hair issue. Clearly, my hair is not blurring the lines between whether I'm a guy or a gal. I, did not, I do not have to spend a lot of time fixing my hair in the morning. But, but in that day, we'll learn. I mean, it's a big deal. Even today, it's a big deal. But, but this is about reverence for God. 
This is about living for His glory. This is about declaring His excellencies. And you see that in, in the first few verses that Joel read, and you see that on your handout in, in point number one, I would think, that Peter makes in verses one and two. A wife is motivated to respond as commanded in Scripture to her husband out of her reverence for God and regard for how Christianity is viewed by its culture. This is motivated by a reverence for God and, and a concern for how others would view Christianity. And Peter writes, in the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. The whole context, when Peter says, in the same way, by the way, when we get to verse 7, he's going to speak to husbands, and he's going to say the same thing. Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with some weaker, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Fellow heir, women are, and he'll go on to say, who is a fellow heir of the grace of life. In the same way as what? In the same way that Peter's already just talked to servants and to masters and to slaves, in the same way that Jesus was, was uh, submitted himself to the glory of the Father, even to the point of suffering. Why? So that society would view Christianity rightly. So that non-believers would be one to the gospel. It's, a, it's in the same way that of fearing God more than men. It's about the advancement of the gospel. It's about our behavior revolving around the glory of God being other-focused. I mean, listen, you and I, be honest, we hate other people telling us what to do. Our flesh hates it. We hate it. We hate submitting to authority. I, I would bet you if, if you were driving down a road and it didn't say go 35, your flesh would not want to go 40. But when you see 35, you're like, no, no, I'm going to go 40. I can go 40 on this road and drive carefully. Watch me. There's something in us. It's sin. And again, it's rooted, it's rooted in Genesis 1 through 11. It's rooted in the fall. If, if we don't understand Genesis 1 through 11, listen, we will have a hard time understanding and the rest of the Bible. Adam and Eve, the moment that they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we've said this before, listen, they understood what was good and what was evil. God had already explained that. And yet the moment that you say, well, you know, what, what good would you get from eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Listen, they would then want to determine for themselves what is good and what is evil. No longer would they submit to God. And you see it immediately. It's not okay to be naked anymore. They clothed themselves. Their fellowship with God hindered. They hid from God. The, the woman that God had given, e, given Adam to be his helpmate, to be a blessing, you know what he did? He's accusing her of wrongdoing. Again, they're living in their own wisdom. And the reality is this. You and I, in our flesh, in our sinfulness, we do not want to submit to God. We do not want to submit to what he says is good and evil. You and I, the root of, and you say prove it, Chris, sin. Sin proves it. Sin is rooted in a refusal for me to submit to what God has said is good and what God has said is evil. It's self over God. All sin is rooted in self. It's rooted in a rebellion, in a refusal to submit to what God says is good and what God said is evil. We want to live according to our own wisdom. 
Go to James 3. He talks about it. There's a wisdom from above that's pure and peaceful and all this. But there's a wisdom from below. We, the problem is for you and I is we, we hang out too often in that wisdom that's below, that worldly wisdom, that selfish wisdom. We, we, we say it to our kids all the time. James 4 is a very often quoted verse in our household. Where do fights and quarrels come from? You want, but you don't have. Self. Hey, kids, stop. How are you being selfish right now? That's what I'll tell my kids. How are you being selfish right now? We'll we'll, we'll try to play pickup sticks, and it'll be like World War III. It moved. It didn't move. It didn't move. Who cares? I let stuff go, and Bradley will get mad at me for letting Sarah win. I'm like, Bradley, I don't care if the black thing moved, the little black stick, or the just win the game. I'm just having fun with you. No, but self. South, we want to win. And, and, and unfortunately, they have a dad who's very competitive. Bradley would get tutoring on Wednesday afternoons. His Spanish teacher would tutor him. Karen always went. Well, she was out of town, and so I had to go pick him up. And so I stayed for the thing. And uh, look, we play, they had this little game, and it was a, I, she's like, man, you guys are so competitive. Can you just play the game? No. Someone's got to win. She stopped the game. She's like, get out of here. I won't get asked back here. I don't know what their mama, their mama, she's very competitive. It's all the front, front. No, but it's, I get, it's me, it's pride. It's self. It's self. I want to determine for myself what is good and evil. I want to be the determiner of how people think of me. I want to determine all this stuff instead of surrendering it to God. And Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says that God's ways are not like our ways. They're higher than our ways. And, and so part of what we, what we see here, it, look, we have to remember, and you see it on the handout, that what we see here is rooted in faith. This is about faith. This is about submitting myself to God in faith. Faith that God knows best. Faith that submission is good for more reasons than we've even mentioned. Faith in his character. Faith in his creation and how he's designed the home. Faith in in a man and a woman. Faith that God's word will be best. Listen, more than anything else, the issue behind this verse, listen, it's not necessarily about what it says. Here's the biggest issue that all of us in this room need to nail down more than anything else. It's the lordship of Christ. Is Christ Lord? Is Christ Lord of your life? Listen, the Lordship of Christ is in your life is the real issue when you come to a hard passage like this. Listen, we don't follow Jesus because we can make sense of his commands. We don't follow Jesus simply because we agree with what he says. We follow Jesus because he is Lord. Because he is sovereign. Not just, oh, that, that makes sense. Well, I'll follow that. Oh, well, that one doesn't really make sense. So I'm not going to. Look, that, you're playing Lord. You're, you're coming to the word with your own wisdom. And you're laying your wisdom over the wisdom of God. And you're having the nerve to, to, to filter the God's word through your own wisdom and through my own. I do it too. Do you see how arrogant that is? You see how bold that is? To filter God's inerrant, perfect, infallible, holy, enduring word 
through my wisdom. That's what we're doing when we come to these passages and we turn our backs. You're tell- you and I are telling God that we know better. And it's a lordship issue. It's a, it's a faith issue. If you, if you and I have to be convinced of the issue before we'll obey, then you don't understand the lordship of Jesus Christ. We don't, again, we don't obey. We don't obey because we voted on the issue and we all agree on the issue and culture supports the issue and therefore, oh, we'll obey the issue. No, we obey because he's Lord. And, and this has always been the issue. And if you go to Luke 6, 46, Jesus said to his disciples, why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? Good question. Why are you going to say Lord? Why are you going to say that I'm Lord, but then not do what I tell you? And, and, and beyond, beyond the personal struggles with this text, Satan and the world convinces us of, of all these blasphemous things about God and the Word to, to get us to, to find excuses to not obey. Listen, there's nothing in this passage that deals with with, that's, a, that's rooted in someone's equality or worth or lack thereof. In verse 7, Peter is going to clearly say, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, as with someone who is a fellow heir of the grace of life. This is not about inequality. This is not about the Bible holding down women. We're going to get to it in a minute. This passage it lifts women up to a place that was unheard of in their culture. That, that right there in and of itself is an indictment on us and our culture. We come to this passage and we see it as so oppressive, so, so, so hindering, and so, oh, it's so anti-women. In Peter's day, there was nothing ever, ever written that gave a woman the freedom that this verse gave them. This would have been exhilarating to a woman. This would have lifted women to places that nowhere in their culture, nowhere in Greek philosophy, nowhere in Roman society would you have allowed a woman to do what Peter is giving her the freedom to do right here. That's an interesting indictment on our culture. Maybe even on ourselves. This isn't about worth. This isn't, it has, we don't, we don't, and it's not about worthy. This isn't where, oh, well, I'll obey this when my husband is worthy of it. The passage clearly says the husband's not worthy of it. It's clearly not. And again, Jesus dealt with that about the Pharisees. If I love only people that love me back, if I serve only people that can serve me back, he says, what what difference is that? The world does that. This isn't about worth. This isn't about personal value. This isn't about the worthiness of the person being served. It is, this passage, again, was weird then, and it's weird today. In, in the culture, just so you understand, again, this is still relevant today, but understand the culture. In, Peter, in, in the culture in Peter's day, it was expected that a wife would have zero friends of her own. It was expected that a wife would serve and worship the gods of her husband. It, it, it would have been seen as rebellion for a wife to worship a God other than that which her husband served. And it would bring humongous, tremendous social ramifications on her husband. Immensely embarrassing, immensely humiliating. 
for a wife even to worship with other people other than her husband, unheard of. Unheard of. For her to make friends again apart from her husband, unheard of. So you can see these wives are coming to know the Lord and Peter is explaining to them, hey, here's how you walk that, here's how you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Here's how you honor the Lord and at the same time, here's how you do not start chaos within your home. Here's how, here's how subtly the gospel will subvert culture, again, without maligning Christianity. And, and again, immensely complicated, you can see when a, when a wife would have become a follower of Jesus Christ, far-reaching implications, not only for her, but for her husband and even in her culture. And, and the wife would have some, some very tough things to work through. How do I honor Christ and love my husband? How do I do this without creating chaos or maligning the gospel or maligning the name of Christ or making a fool of my husband? And the interesting thing is that Peter does not individually address any of those issues. He doesn't order the wife to just rebel and attend Christian worship, but he also doesn't say you can deny, you can ignore Christian worship. He simply says this, work it out with your husband. Work it out, by the way, with your own husband. You know what he's saying there? It don't matter what Julie's husband lets her do. It don't matter what Susie's husband says okay. It don't matter what Jennifer's husband says okay. It don't matter what, you know, Amanda's husband says is okay. What does what your husband say about it? Work it out. And, and you see that. He leaves the specifics up. To the husband and the wife. Each wife, you see it in the handout, was to serve and submit to the wishes of her own husband. Work it out with your husband. And this was huge to give to, again, to, to give the wife that freedom. To give the wife that command was huge in that culture. Work it out with your unbelieving husband. It's going to look different in different marriages. Work it out. And in doing this, you see it on your handout, Peter is opening the door here for the gospel to usher in social transformation. And listen, he's using a wife to do it. That was unheard of. Earlier, he was using slaves to do it. That was unheard of. Unheard of. I mean, this was transformational, and it still is today. This is weird. I'm telling you, in Peter's day, this was weird beyond you will ever imagine how weird it was to approach things this way. No other writings addressed women this way. Peter, again, he addresses slaves and he addresses women in ways that were never, ever heard of up until this point. He's affirming that God will use women and slaves in ways to further his gospel, to advance his kingdom in ways that they would have never been given that privilege and, and priority and responsibility before. And again, as I said, we come to these passages and we feel they're so oppressive and they're so obtuse and they're, they're so out of place. We say, oh, they're weird. But guess what? In that day... This passage was weird in a whole different way. Freeing women up to say, you know what? God can use my life to get great glory. 
This is not some chauvinistic, archaic thing that's past. Listen, the word of the Lord is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. It is always relevant. It's not that, oh, well, we, we as a society have proven that the Bible doesn't work, or we as a society have gotten so smart. Listen, look at the state of marriages today. Clearly what we're doing ain't working. And, and G.K. Chesterton famously said this, famous believer, he said, The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It, is found, it has been found difficult and left untried. The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. Faith. 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 Voluntarily submitting to your own husband, the one to whom God is divinely established to be the head of the home, Christian or not. This is not about inferiority. This is not about whether the husband deserves it. This is a distinctively, you see it on your handout, a distinctively Christian submission of self, not under compulsion, not simply resigning yourself to a fact, but voluntarily submitting yourself to another out of reverence for God. That is weird. It was weird then, it's weird today. A totally distinctive submission. And again, this would not have been a message that would have been lost on the unbelieving husband. It, it, it squelched all the objections. It squelched uh, all the attempts to, to uh, attack the reputation of Christianity by the way Peter is commanding this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. At the same time, Peter doesn't object to the man's authority to the home. The Bible itself establishes that. In that culture, that was well-founded. But it also showed that the woman's motivation was not simply to fall in line with culture, that she had a greater call, and that was to glorify her Lord. That she could be used by her Lord to expand his kingdom in ways that never would have been taught in the culture of that day. Went way beyond the expectations of culture. And the motivation, you see it on your handout, the motivation behind this, do not miss this. This is huge. This is an evangelistic endeavor designed to win people to the Lord. This is an evangelistic endeavor. He's concerned about the lostness of the husband. He's concerned about even about the, the, and the believer's reputation. The word here for disobedient, in some context, it can mean hostile to the gospel. Even refusing to believe. It's a big deal. Again, we, we've talked about it last week. This is more about social ramifications and, and, and all that. It's not saying endure abuse. That is a criminal issue. Run to the police. Please, do not, this is not commanding you stay and get beaten. This is not dealing with criminal issues. Again, the, the lost husband would see in this Christian wife a motivation that exceeded culture. A, a motivation that was selfless. A motivation that even had him at the heart of it in his lostness. It's a reverence for God. A highest regard. It's doing whatever it takes within the confines of Scripture to win the lost. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 verse 19, 
he says exactly the same thing, and he uses his own life. Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 9, 19, 19 through 22. For though I am free from all men, listen to the heart here. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all. Why? So that I may win the more. To the Jews, I became as a Jew, so that I may win the Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those under the law. To those who are without the law, as those without the law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I may win those who are without the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men. Why? So that I may by all means save some. Do you understand the motivation behind this? You understand the motivation between all our lives? It's not about us. It's about advancing our king's gospel. It's about living in such a way that the lost people around us would be attracted to Christ. It's about living in such a way that when we do speak, our words have a context and people have seen it and heard the gospel and seen its effects and now they're hearing the gospel. There's a consistent message throughout Scripture. The why behind why we do this is, lo- is the lostness. It's the expanse of the God's kingdom. It's, to, it's that Jesus came to seek and save that which is lost. We live in such a way to seek and save that which is lost. And, and we've got to be careful not to make this our, our, about us. Again, this is part of what it looks like to die to self daily. And live for the agenda of our king. And, and yet, at the same time Peter is seeking their lostness and to impact that, he upholds the truth of the gospel. And he subverts culture in a way that is true to the Bible, yet doesn't malign Christianity. And there was a tightrope that Peter was walking there in Roman culture. He was concerned not only for the lostness of of the husband, but he was concerned for the reputation of the church in that culture. And I think we have to be mindful of that. You see it on your handout. Peter's concern that Christian wives continue to submit to their own husbands not only shields Christianity from the accusations that it's a social evil, but it was also clearly motivated by an evangelistic intent by showing Christ to be beautifully attractive to a watching world. The unbelieving husband would see in his wife virtue and character and a demeanor and a love for the Lord and a motivation and a, and a submission and all those things, and God would use that to be winsome in his life. Weird. And listen, he would do it, it gets better. He would do it without a word. Without a word. You know what's the hardest thing to do when you're suffering unjustly? You know what the hardest thing to do is? Remain quiet. Not lash out. Not give a defense. Not to tell that person exactly what you think about him. Interestingly enough, this passage comes immediately after verses 21 through 25 that says that Jesus suffered as an example. And you know what Jesus did? He did not utter a word back, and yet he kept entrusting himself to the Father. Interesting context.
This, again, it's not that we don't ever share the gospel. 1 Peter 3.15 is going to say, But sanctify Jesus as Lord in your life, always give, being ready to give a defense for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. And, and this is a very personal... I don't, I don't, I don't in any way want to uh, malign my grandparents or my grandfather. I love them dearly. But my mom's parents, I saw this in the life of my grandparents. I, I saw a woman... They lived across the street from Highland View Baptist Church. You've never heard of. There's a reason. It's a population of about nine. It's where my mom grew up. My grandparents lived across the street. From their living room, their, their front door never closed to the carport. You looked across the church at the church all the time. I, I can remember watching my grandmother faithfully go and worship her God while her husband sat in his recliner and didn't move a muscle. I watched her faithfully serve that man. He was a great guy. But, but there were times where, hey, a long part of her, he, he, he sat right there in that chair and watched her, watched her, watched her. When I went to visit him, it was not an option. We went to church. When all the grandkids, and he would sit there. And guess what? Over the course of time, through my grandmother's behavior, through her words, through her testimony, through her respectful behavior to him, she was a phenomenal wife to him. Eventually, he started getting out of that chair and he started worshiping with her. And eventually, he came to know the Lord. And eventually, he was, there was never a time where she was not worshiping her God that he was not worshiping her God. I'm not saying that this is a guarantee. I'm simply saying, guys, I've seen it work in my own family. Easy? No. Faithful? Yes. My grandmother faithfully entrusted herself and her marriage and the salvation of her husband to the Savior whom she had committed her allegiance to and said, you know what? I'm going to do everything I can to be winsome to this man. And she did it, and God honored that. Praise God. And again, in that culture, you have to understand, and you see it in your hand, it would have been shameful for a wife to instruct her husband. Shameful. And again, Paul, Peter is walking that tightrope. Behavior, honor Christ. This would have been behavior that declared the excellencies of Christ. It would be behavior that was excellent among the Gentiles, that, that would have declaimed his excellencies, that, that did not malign Christianity. And again, a behavior, you see it on a handout, that fueled by a reverence for God, it would have freed her from overvaluing her husband's approval or disapproval, and instead would have freed her to obey Christ no matter the cost. Reverence for God. Not about results. We, we've got to get that out of our minds we, we are not a result-oriented people. We're a faith-oriented people. We're a process-oriented people. We're a faithfulness-oriented people. We won't always get the results that we wanted. Here's, here is regarded, you look at 1 Corinthians 4, every steward must be found what? Faithful. At the end of the day, it's not about results. I can't change a person's heart. I can be, play a part in that, and God in His grace is giving that privilege to a wife in a culture that would have had none of that. Out of a reverence for God. 
And again, in the context, we'll get to it eventually. Peter's going to talk about not fearing man more than you fear God. But not only out of a reverence, it's, it's a picture of what true beauty looks like. You see that as number two. True beauty of a godly wife is found in internals rather than externals through a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of the Lord. As if we haven't covered enough uncomfortable ground for me to stand up in here. Now, now he gets at what is true beauty? And clothing and is beauty inside or outside? Listen, these are still battles that you and I are battling in our culture today. And listen to this. I, I looked this up. Studies show that Americans, and, and again, this is from about two or three years ago, Americans spend $400 billion every year on cosmetics. $400 billion. Two, this was over two years ago. Number one in the world. Number one in the world. That doesn't even count plastic surgery. There's another hundreds of billions there. Number one in the world. And yet, when you look at studies on Americans and their satisfaction of life, we are number one in the cosmetic and the and, and cosmetic industry and cosmetic surgery, and yet we rank 23rd on the satisfaction of life scale. Japan, number two in cosmetics. You know where they rank? 90th in the satisfaction of life. What's the conclusion? Maybe we're looking for satisfaction in the wrong thing. Maybe we're placing an emphasis on the wrong thing. The world holds out this image, this idea that, oh, if you look a certain way, if you do, oh, you'll be so happy. You know what the statistics say? It's a lie. It's a lie. Again, this is not a sermon against wearing makeup. Don't hear me saying that. I do not, just, I do not believe it's a sin to wear makeup. Some of you probably wish I wore makeup. I don't know. I mean, I've been told I have a face for radio. I'm not th I think that's not a compliment, but we're going to let that one go. We're going to let that go. It is what it is. You know what? I see all these commercials for pl hair plugs and all that. I'm like, you know what? If I showed up and all had a head of hair, you'd all laugh. You're like... Chris, come on. You know what? Like my friend used to say, genetics are a cruel master. You know what? My dad's bald. My grandfather, you want to know what my dad looked like? What my grandfather looked like? Do what? Exactly. As is. Thank you, Akeem. Thank you, Akeem, my fellow bald friend. <laughs> we got to stick together. We got to stick together. Come on. Stick together. Listen, this is about what true beauty looks like. I'm trying to add a little ease to a heavy topic. Forgive me. This is about what true beauty looks like. Listen to me. You can go all the way back to Genesis 16. A cur part of the curse of sin was that there would be uh, enmity between man and woman. That women would seek to control men rather than submitting. And that men would seek to rule over their wives in an ungodly way instead of leading them by giving themselves up for them, as it says in Ephesians 5. And because of that, again, listen, women try to control men in a lot of ways. Beauty. Words. Again, this is about submitting 
And Peter is showing, look, what Peter is saying here, you see it on your handout, he is showing how the gospel restores even the relationship between a husband and a wife and what is truly beautiful. A Christian marriage doesn't have to be a constant battlefield. It can be a place of ministry. It can be a place of transformation. It can be a place where God uses to conform both the husband and a wife to, to the image of God. And again, your adornment must not merely be external. He's saying don't only put your hope in that. Braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on of dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a general and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. In Peter's day, understand this, the braiding of hair was an art form. They would braid chains of gold into their hair. They would braid pearls into their hair. They would secure their hairstyles with expensive combs. It was a status issue. And, and it would consume immense amounts of their resources and their time. Fine dresses were worn and they communicated a message. It was all externally focused. And Peter, again, it's not that... Did the air just go off? Uh-oh. It's not as if... These are bad, these are sin in and of themselves. You see it on your handout. Peter is warning against a distorted sense that, vase, that, that emphasizes externals over internals. And Peter is saying inward beauty is of far greater worth than outward. And part of the curse, part of our sinfulness is that you and I size people up, we judge people based on externals. Go to 1 Samuel 16, 7 and the choosing of David. Man looks at the outside, where does God look? Inside. And as a result, we spend a lot of time consumed on what people think about us from the outside. And Peter's point is that externals don't last. Again, notice how he says the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. He's contrasting it to the perishables of, of looks and, and outside. Character is what lasts. Character is what matters. And, and Peter's point, you see it there on your handout, is that we should focus more on our inner character, which is truly beautiful and lasts, rather than external appearances that do not last and often aren't even real. And verses 5 and 6 he gives pictures of that in Sarah specifically, who hoped in God. Her hope was not in mere externals. Sarah was recognized in the Bible as immensely beautiful, yet her hope was in God. And, and I, just for the sake of time, listen, we're going to bring this home real quick. It begs the question for us. Do you spend, and, I, and I, I'm going to talk to husbands and wives. I'm going to talk to wives first. Do you spend more time looking in the mirror? Do you spend, or do you spend more time looking in the Word? You, you care more about what people think about you? Or do you care more about what God knows about you? And, and guys, we're not off the hook here either. We don't get a pass. Listen. It is very difficult in our culture today to be a godly woman. Guys, we play in a huge role in this. Think about this, guys. What do we communicate to women about what matters most, internals or externals? 
What, what are you and I, guys, what do we focus on more, internals or externals? What do we compliment girls more about, their character or their physical traits? What, what are we communicating to, to our girls, to, to our young girls, to our middle school and high school girls, to our college days girls, even to our own wife? What are we communicating to them about what matters to us? Because listen, they're going to have the temptation to chase what matters to culture and what matters to men. We have a role in this, guys. We don't get off the hook. Why is pornography so rampant? Because we are hooked on externals. We communicate to our wives and our kid and women in the world that all we care about are externals. And we're, caught, we're helping our, our, we're encouraging, we're even causing our, our wives and our daughters to stumble by focusing so much on externals and not internals. This is a two-way street. Proverbs 31.30 says, Charm is deceitful and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Do, do, we praise, or do we praise women today that they fear the Lord? Do we, do we praise them for their character? Do we praise them for their gentle and quiet spirit? Do, do we as guys, do we protect them? Listen, I got a little girl. You got little girls. It's a battle. And guys, we need to help them with this. We'll get to it next week, but that's what he's talking about. We live with them in an understanding way. Protect them. Cherish them. Value them. And listen, we don't do a good job of that in our culture. Inside and outside the church. And it's to our own hurt. Listen, it's okay to be beautiful. It's okay to wear nice clothes. It's okay to fix your hair. It's okay to wear makeup. But the point is this, why are you doing it? Where's your heart? Where where do you think true beauty is found? Where, Where are you looking? What are you noticing? You sizing people up based on externals? Or are you taking the time to get to know them and know their heart and really chase after things that last? And in God's economy, you see it. A quiet, gentle, submissive wife is beautiful and effective in her call as God has ordained it in reversing the curse of sin. God is lifting women up to a place of unprecedented status and value here. God's ways are better, they're higher, and Peter is, again, he is subtly subverting culture with God's ways, but yet not causing rebellion and chaos. And he's showing, believer, you can trust God no matter what. And a wife's, listen, a wife's submission is precious before God because it shows that she had placed her hope in God alone. That's why Sarah is exalted. Even though she was physically very beautiful, her hope was in God. Submission, listen, submission is hard. Submission to us husbands is hard. To employers, hard. 
Listen, to God, submission is hard sometimes. It's contrary to my wisdom. It's contrary to my flesh. Here's my, here's my cry to, to our, us, our ladies, but also here's my cry to, to what we ought to be men encouraging. Live as daughters of Sarah, as children of God. I pray that we as our ladies would live for that, but I pray that, that our men, our middle schoolers, our high schools, our college, our grown men, that we would, we would treat ladies differently. That we would look at ladies differently according to what the word values. And in that we'd be weird. I pray that we'd pursue things differently. I pray that we would be a people who place our hope in God, knowing that you may face shame, you may face ridicule, you may face even worse than that. But listen, here's what I close with. Submit even when it's hard out of reverence for God, knowing that what you are doing is precious to God and that in the end, listen to me, you will be vindicated by God himself. You may never be vindicated on this side of eternity. There is coming a day where God is going to right all the wrongs and God will vindicate you. He will reward you tenfold. That's the hope. And again, as we mentioned this morning, we're in this together, men and women. We're in this together. Young and old, we're in this together. I pray that we'd be different. I pray that we'd be weird. I pray that the world around us, non-believers specifically, would see the difference in us and they'd be attracted to Christ. They'd be attracted through the winsomeness of Christ in us, the hope of glory.